All right, well, let's get started. Let's get into the Word. Who's ready to get into the Word of God? Amen. Again, I've said it every week up until now, this, this series has probably been one of, I know it's been one of, but maybe my favorite. Uh, it's just been so simple, and it's the Word of God just going forth, and it does amazing things. It's just so good, so rich, and so thick, I really needed it uh, in my own life. Um, the book of Galatians is so applicable, it's so real and in time for uh, especially our culture. Um, in the southern, uh, the Bible Belt, in the southern uh, states, it, it's almost like church has become this ritualistic thing that it's a rite of passage and it's a way to appease God. But uh, actually, there, there couldn't be anything farther from the truth. And sadly, because of this understanding of what... Uh, Christianity is, we've all, all but lost the gospel, even in a lot of our uh, churches uh, around here and around our state and around the states that surround us. We desperately need preachers that will get back to the gospel of Jesus Christ preaching that no man will glorify himself through his works, that we have no righteousness of our own, none whatsoever, that we must uh, gain entrance to the throne room of grace through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. There is nothing that you can add to your righteousness. Now, there is a place for works and there's a place for the law, but it is not in gaining righteousness or gaining justification before our Holy Father. It has no place there. So we need to get back to this message. We've been preaching hard now for uh, about two chapters and ten verses. We're going to look today at verses 11 through 14 primarily. I do want to step back into the previous sermon just for a moment and, and uh, touch on verse 10 of the last section that we covered uh, because we kind of just moved through that. Uh, the last time we looked, sections, uh, I mean, verses 7 through 10 kind of encompassed this one thought, and that thought process was uh, uh, Paul's assertion that no one added anything to his gospel. They didn't add anything at all. And he makes this statement in verse 6. He says, what they were uh, meant nothing to me, for God does not show any partiality. They added nothing to me. They added nothing to my gospel. And he did this in such a way that I believe absolutely promotes the the doctrine of sola scriptura. And if you've been here through this series and here long at all, you'll understand what sola scriptura is. I know this is a big word and it's a theological word but or, or phrase, but you need to understand these things. We have too many Christians who don't really know any doctrine and don't know any theology. They just think that they're uh, made righteous because they go to church. Well, that's just not accurate. Uh, we need to understand who Jesus Christ is and understand what we believe and why we believe what we believe. We believe in a, in a doctrine called sola scriptura, which is that the, the, the scriptures are our sole authority uh, that we look to for correction, for guidance, and for uh, the opening up of reality to us. So it's not the church, but it's the scriptures. Now, the church does play a role in authority. It plays a role in leadership and leading God's people in the ways of righteousness and rightly dividing the word of truth. But the church itself and the leadership in the church, whether it be this church and me and Mark or Hambone or whoever else or any other church, uh, the church leadership is accountable to the word of God and must account for a right interpretation of the word of God. It's the only way that it can work because if the church is not held in check by the word of God, then we don't need anything and they just say whatever they want to say and it becomes doctrine. So we see in the Roman Catholic Church. We touched that a little bit last week. Well, today I want to touch coming out of that and out of those scriptures, there is a rather odd a little add-on or a little odd little side uh, little scurses that Paul takes, or actually it's the apostles in Jerusalem that they take as they are uh, affirming what God has placed in Paul's heart and what God revealed to him as he revealed Jesus Christ and his gospel to Paul on the Damascus road. He, they affirm him in that. They confirm him in that. They didn't add anything to him. They didn't, they didn't check it off. No, they just recognized that, yes, he, it did come straight from God. But as they affirm this and as they confirm this, he says that they asked one thing of him. And that's what we're going to look at here for just a second. But before I do, I want to uh, pray and ask the Lord to bless our, our, our service and especially the preaching of the word of God. 
Lord Jesus, we commit this sermon to you. We commit our words to you. I pray, God, that you would take away anything that would be man-made, philosophically inclined, or anything like that, and that we would preach the Christ and uh, we would preach the cross and Christ crucified, and add nothing to it, take nothing away from it, and then it would absolutely draw us to yourself. We know that it will. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you could stand to your feet as we read the Word of God uh, in respect. We'll start in verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. That was what the apostles in Jerusalem had said. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a, a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, you may uh, wonder why I want to go back and touch on that last verse. Well, it's because uh, we kind of put those, lump those together in a section last week. And this kind of sticks out. It's still in that same section. But this kind of sticks out uh, and and needs to be addressed as we go by because uh, there's no accidents in the Word of God. So I want you to look back at verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, This seems kind of odd for a minute, at least it did to me, and I don't know if you read the Word like I do, but I'm reading, and and I'm always looking for themes, and I'm looking for threads that run through and how the Word of God connects together. And it just seemed to me as I was reading, we're reading this thing, and Paul is adamantly defending his uh, uh, apostolic authority, his revelation of Jesus Christ, which came from God and not man. He, he, he tells this whole elaborate story about going to Jerusalem and appearing before them and laying his truth down, and, and they confirmed him. They didn't add anything to him. He goes through this whole idea of him uh, receiving the same gifting that Peter had. And Peter was called to the circumcision, but he was called to the uncircumcised. He absolutely parallels his authority with that of Peter's. And then he says this, he says, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that grace was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, in that culture, the right hand of fellowship was, I am in agreement with you. We are, uh, we are aligned with one another. So, you know, nowadays it's hard to get a good handshake out of any man. Amen. I actually, my mom, uh, with my mom's help, uh, we taught my oldest son and teaching the others how to give a good handshake. And, and, and when you shake someone's hand, to me, it means something. When I shake somebody's hand, I want it to mean something. I don't want to squeeze too hard because I feel kind of dainty and I'm trying to make up for something, right? And I don't want to hand them a dead fish either. You feel me? I want to give a good, firm handshake that says, hey, this is who I am, and, and, I, and I want to enter into this, this relationship with you. So that's what that handshake is for. Well, back in these days, it was far more than that even. Uh, to give the right hand of fellowship was to enter into a covenant. It was to enter into an agreement. It was to enter into a, a, a like-mindedness that when you, when you offered somebody the right hand of fellowship in this pursuit of a life goal, it was we agree, we support, we confirm, and we've got your back. And they did, just, they did just that. If you go and read Acts, uh, any account, Acts 9, 11, or 15, it was they, they not only acknowledged that Paul did have the truth of the gospel and the revelation of Jesus Christ, but they went so far as to write a letter to all the churches saying, Paul's coming and what he's saying is legit. Listen to him. Okay, So they extended the right hand of fellowship, meaning that they absolutely were in line with him. They gave him a hearty amen and sent him on his way. And then we have this verse in verse 10. It says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So this is how that should read. This is how you should understand that in, in our understanding is, is that he put forth all this amazing doctrinal truth, this revelation. He laid it all out. They said, yep, 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 that's from God. And they didn't add anything to him at all. But, he, but as he was going, as he was leaving, as he was about to go into the ministry, they said, but now 
you've told us all this, but now make sure that you, uh, you look after the poor. So it's almost like they were going to add that in. But Paul says we were already eager to do that. But isn't it amazing? Now, we live in a culture that is what? Driven by what I want. It's, been, it's driven by what I can afford or really even what I can afford. I'm going to buy it anyway. You know what I'm saying? Our culture is driven and we get our identity from how much money we have, how much things we possess, and who's got the better gadget. We don't really think about other people. And we might throw them a bone. We might throw them a little something, you know. But we don't really. It's, it's sad that the restaurants have to put on the ticket what is 10, 15, 18, 20, whatever it is. So that maybe those of you who can't do math might give a waitress a decent tip. I'll never forget several times I've talked to uh, waitresses and they've told me how church people. They say Sundays are their worst day. I hope that the, the restaurants we visit aren't. They say Sunday are their worst day, and they get things like this, a, a, a church business card. They get tracks. Here's your tip. Give your life to Jesus. That one a soul. No, it just ticked somebody off is all it did. We're not generous. We're not. Now, maybe, may, I know some of you are. So this is not an indictment on all of you. All I'm doing right now is pointing out just how important generosity is. That they didn't say, now, make sure that you uh, uh, get the cross right. They didn't say, make sure that you uh, get the doctrine of justification by faith alone, right? They didn't say, make sure that you have a correct account of Matthew's gospel. They didn't say, you, you get it. They said, make sure you don't forget the poor. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I want, as, as Martin Luther is writing on this, I want you to look at something right here because I, I believe that Luther had an insight here that it piqued my insight and I started thinking that is exactly right. Let me tell you something right now. You, you tell me if you agree with this. Here's my understanding of why they might have done that, Okay. This is conjecture, but I believe that this, this is my opinion. I believe that they in that culture understood what I can understand as well. I believe they understood that, that when you have a man of God who is a gifted speaker, or you have someone who is just a gifted speaker, that he can accumulate for himself an audience, that he can bring in a crowd. Now, it is very easy for us to take our gifts and our abilities, whether that be a godly gift such as preaching or teaching, or whether that be a godly gift such as ministering to the lowly, whether that be a godly gift of, of healing or a prophetic ministry maybe, whatever that might be, just a gift of communication. And we start bringing these people in and they start giving. Then we have the, we have the issue that we can become puffed up. And we can start to become rich off of the people. And we can start to think of the church as a business instead of what it was truly meant to be. The proclamation of Jesus Christ to all peoples of all nations. You say, I don't, does that really happen? Not, I won't name any names. But we know from just the news that there are all types of preachers and uh, prophets and healers, and, and they're, they're selling uh, the, the, these healing oils on TV for, if you'll just sow a, a gift of $1,000. Preachers building 16,000 square foot houses. Uh, go on and research. I will put this name out there because everybody knows it. Go on and Google Kenneth Copeland's explanation for his jet. One of the explanations is he can't take the airline jets because he can't be around all of those demonic people because he needs his privacy to pray. That's Google. You can look it up for yourself. The point being is that the apostles realize and understand that when you have a gifted man going out, that it is very common that that could be used as a tool for the devil. And we could absolutely be overwhelmed by fame and all of these things, and we could keep back what is rightfully the Lord's. 
But Paul here is not touched by that. And this will be my point in this section right here is that in order uh, to be a true church, a true ministry, a true religion, a true Christian example, we must remember the poor. We must give. And we must always. This is one reason, Mickey, why a budget is needed. At least an account of what's been spent. And if you want one of those, let me know. Shanda will print it out for you. I won't. But you can look and see where all the money has been spent. You say, well, can't we just trust God? Why do we need that? We need to hold each other accountable. You want to know where any money in this church is spent? Ask me. I'll print it out for you. I'll tell you this. Your church is a giving church. We don't have a lot of money in the bank. Why? Because we can't take it with us. We spend it. We see a need. We give we see a, uh, an opportunity, we take it. We spend money on ministry, we spend money on people, we spend money. We're not, we're not, we don't have $150,000 in the bank because we're going to use that money. What good is having it if you don't use it? I will tell you this, I'm proud of our people, I'm proud of our leadership because you can look at what they give and our leadership give. The people that get paid in this church, many of them give far more than they get paid. Far more. You say, well, that's kind of bragging. No, it's not. I'll tell you, Paul did the exact same thing. Why? Why would Paul say this? You want to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Check this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 through 16. Paul says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul puts forth this standard. If somebody's preaching the gospel or working in the church or they're putting forth their time and their effort to do what's God's work, then they do have a right to get paid by that ministry. Okay? Granted, that's, that's biblical. But listen to what Paul says. And this, this goes to show you that Paul can rightfully say the very thing we were eager to do in Galatians. Because listen to what Paul says here. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul says, I must preach the gospel. He says, I'm eager to give. I'm eager to do this. I'm eager to do what you've called me to do. Let me ask you today, church, are you eager to get your hands into the ministry? Are you eager to get your hand in your pocket to give it away? You say, he's preaching on money today. I didn't think he'd start preaching on money. I'm not telling you right now, if you want to hold on to your money, hold on to your daggum money. I'm not preaching to get you money. You need to give because you want to give. If you give because I talk you into it, I've, ta I've taken away your blessing. We give because we love God. We give because we love people. We give because the ministry needs the money in order to promote God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. What? I didn't get a lot of amens on that. Listen to what Luther says. True, true ministry, true gospel ministry is always lacking for funds. Why? Because true gospel ministry goes after everybody, including the broke people. Double-edged sword. You go and you reach the down-and-outers who have never been committed to a church before. They've never given to a church before. They've never been faithful to tithe or give above and beyond. They don't have anything to give because the world is, has been rough to them. They don't have anything. So you go and minister to the down-and-outers. You minister in the byways and the highways, and you get all the people in. Both, a lot of y'all are jacked up, but a lot of y'all are broke. A lot of us are broke. Let's just say it that way. So true ministry is always has a lack of funds. Martin Luther said the same thing. Listen to what he says. Speaking of money, nobody wants to contribute uh, nowadays. Now, this is in his day. This was written around 1538. Speaking of money, no, nobody wants to contribute nowadays to the maintenance of the ministry and the erection of schools. When it comes to establishing false worship and idolatry, no cost is spared. True religion, true religion is ever in need of money, while false religion... Religions are backed by wealth. Why? 
And I need to move on from this. But why would that be? It's because a ministry that will stand up and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that your allegiance to Christ may cost you everything, instead of preaching that if you come to Jesus Christ, you will get all of your hopes and dreams and all of your money and all of your pocketbooks filled up full. Nobody wants to hear that message. But you start preaching about how much money you'll get if you're only faithful. Back in. That's not the gospel. So we will take what we get and we'll watch God do amazing things through it. That's why I'm always saying if you love your money, just hold on to it. I have faith that God will sustain this ministry. I want you to look around. Look around the outside. This, this church was remodeled and poured into. This is probably, I don't know, we've had several construction guys, well over a million-dollar renovation. It's paid for, and I promise you we didn't have a million dollars. It was these grooves in the floor. I've said it many times. These grooves in the floor, Danielle, raise your hand. That girl over there was on her hands and knees cutting these grooves in these floors. These boards, we made these boards. Why do I say all that? Why do I spend so much time on this? The reason I spent so much time on this is that a true church, a true church will be, will be concerned about ministering to the down and out and the broken, even when times are tough. And Paul can say with the best of them that I was, I was concerned with your well-being through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wanted to point that out because I want some of you to understand that it is, it is your responsibility as a believing church to open up your pockets and give when, it, give when it hurts. I have to do the same thing so that we can minister to the poor, so that we can love them. Be generous. It is one of the most neglected things that there can possibly be. Be generous, church. Now, let's move on. The next section here, he moves from this, and he talks about giving to the poor. He said, make sure that you don't, don't forget the poor. Remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And then he goes on and he says this, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separating himself, fearing the circumcision party. There's three things I want you to see out of this rebuke that Paul gives to Peter. Three things here that show us uh, some things that, that we need to understand when we're opening up the Word of God and when we are thinking about ourselves in light of the gospel and ourselves in light of other people who sin in the church. Three things I want to show you right here. Uh, number one is sin requires the open face-to-face -face rebuke of a brother, and it's for the purpose of restoration. I want you to see right here, how often does this happen these days? How often does it happen that somebody would openly rebuke you face-to-face -face without you leaving or somebody getting mad and a relationship being broken? Listen to what it says. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back. Here's the situation that you have. So the gospel is going forth. Paul has absolutely, uh, he has confirmed his calling. He's confirmed his, uh, his, his revelation of Jesus Christ and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of a the sudden, these false apostles come into the Galatian church and they're teaching people that you must be circumcised along with faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the only way to salvation. They start preaching works and they start preaching, you've got to do certain things in order to get to God. But Paul says, may it never be. It is not Jesus plus circumcision or anything else, but it is the gospel of Jesus Christ and that alone. Well, here we have Peter who is a powerful apostle. So powerful uh, that, that the Roman church thinks that the, the church is built on Peter, the apostle Peter. Now, we can look at that verse another day. But they give all this power to Peter, and they elevate this apostle above all the other apostles. And they say, we live in the tradition of Peter, and this is what we must do to be saved. And they start to add all these things. 
Well, Paul here demonstrates. Now, I want you to follow this train of thought. Why would he, why would he count this account in here? Why would he put this in here? Because we understand that Paul's writing this letter to, to instruct them in some things that have been going on, right? Why would he pick Peter? Why would he pick this story? Why would he do this? I want you to follow the vein of thought. So Peter here, I mean, Paul here has talked about he went to Jerusalem. They confirmed everything was from God, and he gets back. He, he says, we're eager to remember the poor. Let's get going. Well, then he, he meets up with Peter. He sees this instance where Peter comes into this Gentile uh, situation, this Gentile audience, this Gentile crowd. And when nobody's around, when the circumcision party isn't around, when those who uh, are not churchy people, okay, how, how well does this relate? When, when, he's, when, he's around the, when he's around the sinners, when he's around the, 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 the well people, he's free. And he can, he, can, he can eat meat. Now, you need to understand a little bit of context here. What would it matter that he was eating and drinking with Gentiles? What does that even mean? What was the problem? Well, if you understand the context and if you understand the problem with eating with the Gentiles, why the circumcision party would have had a problem with this, it's that the Gentiles were doing things that were against Old Testament law. They ate certain meats that was not biblical if you're going to follow Levitical law. The law given by Moses, it wasn't, it wasn't lawful to do that if you were a Jew, not by Old Testament standards. They drank wine. They did certain things like this. We talked a little bit about alcohol last week. So it would be like the very strict, ultra-conservative teetotalers. That, and if you're a teetotaler, praise the Lord. That's, that's great for you. I'm glad for you. But you can't make laws for somebody else and put burdens on them that the, that the Bible doesn't do. We said that in here. I'm not going to apologize for it. If God wanted to say it, he could say it. If you don't like it, then don't do it. There's Christian liberty. But here we are in a situation where Peter, though he did observe, he was set free by Jesus Christ, and he did understand the gospel. Peter did understand the gospel. So here he is. He's intermingling with Gentiles, and he's not getting drunk. He's not doing anything sinful. The text doesn't say that. But he's sitting down. He is free in Christ, and he is, uh, he is eating some meat, some bacon, I imagine. Bacon, you know, one reason I'm not a Muslim, you know, uh, I don't really like bacon, but sausage is amazing. You know, I really like Italian sausage. You don't like it, Kimberly? I saw you poke your nose up. Uh, I get Italian sausage on my pizza, right? But, 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 but the Old Testament law would have forbid the eating of these kinds of meats. Any, any hooved animal or any man, animal that was in the mud, you couldn't eat that. It was off limits, it was against Levitical law. And here Peter is, he's just scarfing down some Italian sausage and some bacon, a little bit of grease on his chin, you know, following it up with a little something. I don't know what it was. But here he is, he's doing these things, right? Something very interesting to me out of this text, I'm going to bring it to you in just a second. But then all of a sudden it says James and some of his people come in. Now who's James? Jesus' brother, one of the apostles, one of the, one of the ones that were you know, carried some weight. When he walked into a room, it'd be like, it'd be like you know, the, the, the president of the Southern Baptist Association or convention, whatever. They walked up in the room with their suit on and be like, bam, and everybody said, like, grab a Bible. Hurry. I was reading. You know what I'm saying? This is like the guy. This is the guy, right? And he walks in. Now, it doesn't even say that James uh, condemned him. It doesn't even say that. But all of a sudden, Peter, though he was eating freely, drinking freely, partying down freely. Now, I'm not telling you to go party this weekend, okay? Let's keep our language clear. He was just living and exercising Christian liberty. He was living and, and eating and moving and, 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 and breaking bread with the Gentiles. But all of a sudden, when the Jews came in, when James come in, it says the circumcision party come in. What does it say? He drew back from them. He drew back from them. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, I want you to see something here. This is good, I think. Paul does not rebuke Peter for eating with the Gentiles. Paul does not rebuke Peter for drinking what was unlawful to drink. Paul does not condemn Peter and rebuke Peter for doing unlawful things with the Gentiles. Why does he rebuke him? He rebukes him for stopping. Hypocrisy. 
You ever noticed that before? He said, oh, he rebuked him. He rebuked him because of what his actions would mean. Now, this is a little, this is, you get your head around this. Because what Paul is doing is staying in the same vein of thought that he has done the whole time. Paul has said, it's by grace, not works. Grace, not works. Grace, not works. And what Peter is doing by his actions. Now, Peter isn't uh, uh, vocally teaching that you must have works or you must be circumcised. But his actions show otherwise. You see, if you're eating with someone, if you're enjoying someone's company, and, and all of a sudden someone better comes in, someone that you think is, is more up, more righteous, and all of a sudden you withdraw from that person, then what you're saying is, is that by me being around you, I am less righteous, and vice versa. By me not doing what you do, I am found righteous in the eyes of God. Therefore, the things that I do make me righteous and not God Almighty. You see it? His actions were preaching works-based righteousness. His actions were preaching works-based righteousness. So much so that Paul says this. He says, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hip uh, hypocritically too along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. It's going to say in Galatians chapter 5, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Don't enter back into that yoke of slavery. You see, Paul's saying, look, Peter, you have the freedom to do that. If you don't want to do that, then fine. If you don't want to do that, then fine. Paul says that in another place. And Paul also says in, in 1 Corinthians, he says too, he says uh, that, that I became all things to all, my, all men that I might win some. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To one outside of the law, I became like one outside of the law. Paul is himself saying that I sit down and eat with Gentiles. Don't bother me. I have freedom to do that. Paul goes on to say I'm free to do all things, but not all things are beneficial to me. Therefore, sometimes I eat meat, and sometimes I drink wine, and sometimes I don't, lest I cause my brother to stumble. We talked about this last week. It's called Christian liberty, but it's a really dangerous thing to preach. And we always tend to go towards legalism. That's why our churches are in such peril, because we go one or the other. We either say, you can do whatever you want to do, because forgiveness is given. You can, do whatever. You can sin like hell. You can live like hell, and you can still go to heaven. No, you can't. But then the other side says, you can't do anything. you got to put a doil on your head. Get, get, some, get some dry goods. Move up in the mountains and wait for Jesus to come. No. You've got to make sure that you are doing everything perfectly right because it's, it's, it's faith in Jesus plus observance of the law. No. That's what's beautiful about the gospel. That's what's beautiful about the gospel. It gives you more freedom than any other religion while holding you more accountable than any other religion. Jesus Christ said, if, you, if the Son sets you free, then you're free indeed. But he also says, you've seen it written, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. To be freed from the letter of the law but to be bound to Christ is not a lesser accountability, but it's a greater accountability. Number one, sin requires... Now, here, I want, you, I want to draw this out right here. Okay, now. So Paul rebukes Peter to his face. He says that here, to his face in front of everybody. I think Paul, he's a genius... He's doing another thing here. He, he rebukes Peter for his hypocrisy and in his active teaching of works-based righteousness through his actions. But he rebukes him in the way that it should be done openly. You see, it was done uh, in the opposite way to Paul. That's why Paul's writing these things. Because these false brothers, it said back in uh, verse 2, back in chapter 2, verse 
4, it says, Yet because the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. You see, what happened to Paul, Paul didn't do it that way. They came in to Paul to, to, to spy out his uh, freedom in order to make him a slave again. Paul says, If you're going to come in, just come on in and talk to my face. If you got a problem with me, come on in. Let's talk about it. Let's examine the scriptures. Talk to me about it to my face. Let me show you how that works. And he comes into Peter's situation and he says, Peter, right here in front of all these guys, that's wrong right there. Is he trying to condemn Peter? No. He's already condemned. That's what the text says. Check it out. It says, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Now, what was happening in this was that he was living in a situation that was condemned already. The verse before that says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is how that works. You see, Paul has already taught that there is no way to get to the Father through works-based righteousness. No glory, no, no flesh will glory in his presence. You cannot please God through the observance of the law. And what Peter had done is he, has went, he had went backwards. He had went backwards. And he had promoted the idea that separation from these Gentiles, separation from these practices, separation and adherence to the Old Testament law will make me more righteous than Jesus Christ. So he had brought condemnation on himself. Let me tell you something. Let me, let me put that in, in our terms. There's a, there's, a, there's a crazy balance. Do you need to go to church every time the doors are open? Yes. We need all the help we can get. Do you need to be in every Bible study that you can? Yes. Do you need to do devotions every night with your family? Yes. Do you need to be in your Bible every day? Yes. Do you need to show respect for people and give your money away in order to bless them and watch out for the poor? Yes. But when those practices become the basis of your righteousness and your justification, you don't understand the gospel and you have brought condemnation on yourself. Is that under, do you guys understand that? Do you understand what I'm saying? Paul would say it this way. If you want to live according to the law, then you must live according to the law. If you want to get your justification by the things that you do, whether it be how you dress, how much money you make, or how much money you give at church. See, religious things can become work-based righteousness and obligations. If you're going to live according to the letter in order to get your righteousness and your justification, then you need to follow it perfectly to the T. And can anyone in here do that? So if you're trying to get your righteousness according to the law, you stand condemned already. That's why it's loving to go face to face and say, brother, this is a sin. This is a sin. It's a sin. Now... Again, the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christianity is perfectly balanced because many would take this verse and say, you see there, somebody sins, we go hit them right in the mouth with it. We condemn, we, we knock them down, we kick them, we throw them out of the church. Get out of here, you sinner. But Paul, being amazingly balanced, said this in chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Isn't it good? Paul is saying that we need to watch ourselves and when our brother stumbles, we shall not stand up with our chest poked out over him and say, you have fallen. You are no longer like me. Because what is that? Pride. And pride goes before fall. Rather, we are to stoop down on a knee and, and grab that brother. 
grab that sister in love and pull him back up. Pray for them. Pray for them and restore them back to that place. We must guard each other. We must look after each other. But we've got to be willing to come to a person's face. You see, the reason that Peter had uh, acted in this way, it's here in the text. It says, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. What was the reason for his actions? Fear of man. He cared too much what they thought. The fear of man. And I wrote here in my notes, his actions were the result of the fear of man and not the freedom of Christ. His result was the fear of man and not the freedom of Christ. So it's very easy for us to preach really legalistically because I don't want you guys to sin. I don't want you guys to sin. And the fear is, the reason, the reason churches go legalistic is because they're afraid people will start sinning. And they understand that if they can just make sure that the people don't sin, that they can feel better about what they look like because men, even church leadership, they judge by the outward appearance. But I'm going to tell you right now, there's churches full of really, really nice suits and really morally almost perfect people, and they're going to bust hell wide open because they don't know Jesus. And on the other end of that spectrum, there's people who, churches who, preach the freedom of Christ and they live however they want to in, in homosexual relationships they have homosexual pastors they have all of these things they say oh tolerance, tolerance, tolerance be inclusive, be inclusive this is the way to heaven and it's not the balance is right in the middle it's in Christ Martin Luther and all uh summarize and paraphrase he says the law of god has its place but it's not to get you to heaven it's to guard your steps on the earth the gospel the gospel makes way to christ it washes over our sins and if we have a problem with our conscience between us and jesus christ we look to the gospel of jesus christ that soothes our soul but when we look to the look to the activities here on earth and the works. Then we look to the law and we say, with Paul, I, I, I beat my body and I make it my slave. That we have spiritual discipline here. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, may the works come out of us because it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the man or the will. That we test ourselves. It's a tough doctrine to preach because we don't understand grace. Everybody wants to know, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Jesus Christ had the same question in John 6. I think it's 26. The, the apostle said, what do I do to go to heaven? What do I do to go to heaven? What do I do to go to heaven? What, do I do? what work do I do? What work do I do? What work do I do? Everybody wants to know, what do I got to do? What do I got to do? What do I got to do? And Jesus says, the work of God is this. Believe on the one who is sent. He said, if you believe in Jesus Christ and you have faith in Jesus Christ, there's nothing else you need to do. And the legalistic preacher says, no, don't tell them that. They won't do anything. <laughs> yes, tell them about Jesus. Tell them about the faith. Tell them about the grace. Tell them about the salvation. But tell them they got to do stuff now or they're not going to get it. That's no longer the salvation by grace. So, what am I saying? I was going to do this last week. I'm going to do it this week. I, that fine line, that, that fine line of, of good gospel preaching, does it lead someone to just do whatever they want to? Unfortunately, yes. So what does the preacher do to guard against that? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. See, I'm not going to tell you, you've got to do this and you've got to do that in order to get to heaven. I, I can't do that. 
The Bible doesn't do that. All I can say is that the way that you the way that you have a relationship with Christ and the way that you appease the wrath of God is to have faith in Jesus Christ. But here is where believing in the sovereignty of God comes in. Here's where believing in the elect and believing what the Bible says about he knew them before the very foundations of the world. Here's where believing where Jesus Christ says, all that the Father has given to me, they will come to me and I will lose none. When Jesus Christ looks at his disciples, when he looks at his apostles, he says, you going to leave too? See, when things got hard, when things got tough, they turned and left. But why did the others stay? Why was it that they stayed? Because they had done everything right? No. We don't remain in the presence of God because we do the right things. We stay in the presence of God because we're alive, and he alone has life. That was what the word was. Jesus looks at him and says, you're going to leave too? They say, where are we going to go, Jesus? You have the words of life. If you find your life anywhere else, in the things that you do, in the money that you have, in the people that you know, you will die and go to hell because that is nothing. It's fleeting. It's frail. It's fragile. And it's going to fade away. All your money's going to be gone before long. It's going to be gone. Your looks, your beauty, peace. Your friends, they're going to betray you. Your family, they're going to let you down. All your works, you're going to fall. We all do. I do. You do. We all do. But when we love Jesus, when we walk with Jesus and when we talk with Jesus, when he is our mediator and he is our friend and he is our father, he is our brother, he is our, he is our righteousness. He is everything that we need. He is sufficient. He is, our, he is our everything. When we live in that type of relationship, will we fall? Will we falter? Yes, we will. But the conviction is so rich and the conviction is so thick that we can't live outside of the law. You see, Jesus Christ said, I did not come to abolish the law, but that the law might be fulfilled in me. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. And we understand that where Jesus Christ upholds the law and lives in perfect obedience to God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit, when we enter into communion with him and when he sends his spirit inside of us, then the law is fulfilled in us, in our members. Literally, the law is filled up full in you and you are now righteous before God. You, in Jesus Christ, have perfectly followed the law to the letter. And you have been justified before God. And you have been deemed not guilty. Now, that same spirit, we we will get to this coming up soon. But that same spirit, I'm going to jump ahead and read just for a second. Listen to this. I'll finish with this right here if the band wants to come on up. Finish a little early today, maybe. Listen to this. You want to know how to stop sinning? You want to know how to live according to the law? Now, I'm not talking about the Levitical law. I'm talking about the principles found in the, in the Ten Commandments, in the Old Testament, in the Scriptures, the principles that still hold today. You think you're free from the law, but you're, you're wrong in a sense. Because all those who break the law, they will be found guilty. It is Jesus Christ and his fulfillment, perfect fulfillment to the T that is realized in your body. It's the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And he imparts his righteousness to us. He imparts his his obedience to us. But the Bible would go on to tell us that those who say that they love Christ, but they do not obey him, are liars and the truth is not in him. So the law of God stops being a prescription of what you do. The, the, the Ten Commandments stop becoming a prescribed methodology of how you should live, but it becomes a description of how a Christian does live. You see, if you love Jesus, the Ten Commandments will describe your life. You won't have to make your walk in them you will walk in them and when you fall down and when you fail you will get up in dust and ashes you will repent Jesus forgive me I am a sinner I am unclean and the book of John first John tells us if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness amen church it's good it's good. You see, we can't obey the law, but the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. Ooh. 
Listen to this. Now, this is in context here. It's good. It's good. Paul says this about, because I understand. I understand why super conservative churches preach the law. I do. I understand. They don't want people to sin. I get it. I get it. And they can make people have a great appearance of righteousness. But when we self-will ourselves for righteousness, though we appear righteous for a season, we stand condemned. Because only the blood of Jesus Christ is the perfect atoning sacrifice for those sins. Here is how we actually put to death the deeds of the flesh. Listen to what Paul says in the same book in Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. Listen to what he says. It's beautifully written. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Church, if you not hear, heard a word I said today, listen to me. If you, try, if you try to bring your body into subjection by grit and determination and obedience to the written law, it will not work. It will do one of two things, and I'm telling you this for your own benefit. It will either lead you to pride because you think you have, and in your arrogance you will stand and say, I obey the law. I read my Bible every day. I never miss church. I am righteous before God. You see the foundation of your righteousness? It will crumble, I promise. Or the other place it will lead you is despair. Because if you actually understand that you will never fully obey the law of God, then you will live in a hole, in a constant state of depression. Some of you live in this place right now, and you, you've never known why. You said, I prayed that prayer. I, I did that thing. I, I, I go to church all the time. Why do I not have the peace that the preacher talks about? Why do I not feel the explosion of life like he speaks of? Why do I not feel peace like my brother feels? Why do I not have that joy and that passion that so many people around me have? I go to church. I pay my tithes. I read my Bible. You just gave the three foundations of your righteousness and the description of why you don't have peace. For the sinner that is saved by grace cries only unto Jesus Christ, forgive me for I am a sinner. Paul says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You see, when your conscience starts to get at you, and I'm speaking to the children of God in the room. Those of you who are not children of God, you stand condemned. There is no hope for you. You need to give your life to Jesus Christ, your whole life, that he would be Lord of your life and that his righteousness might be imparted to you because you have none. But let me speak to the Christians in the room for a moment. The true Christians in the room, you've given your life to Jesus. He's the Lord of your life. No, you're not perfect, but you don't claim to be. He's the Lord of your life. He's your God and he's your master. Let me tell you something right now. When the enemy starts to come against you and he starts to condemn you and your conscience is seared, then you speak to your conscience and you say, Conscience, you don't, you don't, you don't overwhelm me. You don't come against me, conscience, for I am covered in the blood of Christ. And though I may fail, he never does. You come against your mind. You come against your flesh and you say, you sit down over here. Yes, I've failed, but Jesus Christ never does. And the Bible says that when we are faithless, he is faithful and that he never fails. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. You say to your conscience, you say, conscience. He don't want me to tell you this. But I'm going to tell it to you. Many preachers would get upset with me for saying that, but I'm going to tell you right now, if you're in Christ, you are righteous and nothing can take it away, not even your sin. But now, 
You see, you say to your flesh, you say to your body that's committing that sin. You say to your conscience, you say to your heart, you say to your, you say to your soul that you are found in Christ and nothing can take that away. But now you, you look at your body and you look at your hands. And you look at your earthly life, you look at, you look at the here and the now, you look in the mirror and you say, you examine yourself to see whether or not you truly be in the faith. You look at your hands, you look at, you look at your actions, you look, you look at what you're doing, you look at your sin, are you loving your sin? You examine your earthly works, you look at them and you say, hand, what are you doing? Is that in accordance with the gospel? Are you living out the gospel? Is the spirit man winning? Are you walking by the spirit? Are you walking by the flesh? Oh, man of God, oh, body, you better get yourself in line. Because we don't belong to this world. We don't belong to hell and his enemies and Satan. We don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You get yourself in line because you're living out of step with the gospel. The rebuke is to bring you back in step with the gospel. You see, saint of God, you stop living in your sin. You cleanse yourself. You purify your hands is what Paul would say. He don't let you off the hook because you've been saved. Because you've been saved by grace. Are we saved by grace that sin may abound? May it never be. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. All these things faithfulness and it doesn't say the fruits but this is the fruit a wonderfully fruitful life comes from Jesus Christ and when the enemy comes against you and your conscience is in turmoil you say to your conscience I am found in Christ and not in my deeds then you look at your body and you say you straighten up you're living out of step with the gospel. You see, this is, this is harmonic. This is shalom. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That his blood purifies us from all unrighteousness. And when his spirit comes inside of us, we walk out the fulfillment of the law and of righteousness. You see that balance? Is it just me or do you see that balance? You understand what I'm saying, Amy? You get what I'm saying? When the Spirit of God lives inside of you, you walk according to the, the Spirit. It's this, it's this balance. Now we trust that preaching to Jesus Christ. We trust that when the message goes forth, Jesus said, my sheep, they, they hear my voice and they listen. There's sheep and there's goats in the room tonight, today. I'm calling you sheep get busy for the Lord I'm calling you people of God to get out there I'm trying my best to equip you for the work of the ministry you've got to get out there because this is the message this is, so many so many of your church friends so many of your worldly friends so many of them they're, they're working they're working they're working they're working only to find themselves overworked and underpaid because the works of this life will never will never get you the riches of heaven Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Amen. As we all stand to our feet. So the cry today would be to live in step with the gospel, to pursue Jesus Christ, and, and don't focus so much on doing the right things all the time. I know that's dangerous preaching, but I want to tell you, when you focus on Jesus Christ, when you look to the cross, when, you, when, when Jesus Christ is lifted up and you behold his glory, he, you will, you will be drawn to him. When Jesus Christ is glorified in your life and the Holy Spirit is walking in step with you, you will walk out. You will walk out of life that is in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. It is the best it is the best understanding of how to live this life in a righteous way. We live it according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I want to pray for us as we do this last worship song. I want to ask you to come where you are. Come to Christ where you are up here, wherever it is. And I want you to examine your hearts. I want you to ask yourself, where are you getting your righteousness? Where are you getting your understanding? Where are you getting your peace? Do you have peace? Let's look to Christ. Jesus, I pray over this congregation now. God, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see your glory, God. 
I pray that you would open up our eyes to see that, that, that works of the flesh can never, they can never provide for us righteousness or justification or peace, God. Those things are immensely important, Lord, that we walk according to your word, Lord, but we can't do it on our own, God. I pray that you would open up our eyes to see that only when we walk by the Spirit, by the power of the Holy Ghost, may we do what we have been called to do, God. Bring dead people to life in here this morning. That's my proclamation. Through the gospel of Christ, wash them clean in the blood of the spotless Lamb. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do what God's calling you to do.